Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Books Boys, live from the Grand Library, the Dean and PJ. Yes, PJ. Hello there. How are you? I'm the Dean, and we are the Books Boys. This is the Books Boys show. Get it? Buy it? Books. Books. PJ, I have one important question for you. Is this a holiday? (laughs) Is that that's basically the most memorable Shakespeare quotes of the year as of now? I've made that a hit. For anyone who doesn't know, yeah, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. That's what the kids are all talking about. Is this a holiday? That's what everyone wants to know. (laughs) If this makes no (laughs) sense. The most important part of the whole play, just like, is this a holiday? If anyone knows what we're talking about, it's it's in our Instagram and it's in all our social medias at the minute. We've got the video clips. um, Raving. And also, this month's sponsor, we'll get it out of the way early, uh, 0800, is this a holiday? And if you ring them... (laughs) And you just explain to them what your current circumstances are, and they'll explain whether or not you are. Well, they have to explain what their profession is, name, thy profession, <laughs> and they have to they have to explain it. And they'll so tell you if you're on holiday, guys. The reason this happened is we 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 saw each other this month. Indeed, we did. I went Indeed to visit you down in in Galway. We had a little you. a little video of me, myself, and Alex going on a pilgrimage, a little excursion uh, on safari. To find uh, to find the books boy hanging out uh, in bookshops in uh, Galway. So we crazy went coincidence. Just all of a sudden, I'm there even though I, I I'm staying an hour away from Galway, just happened to be in the same bookshop, <laughs> and you happened to just jump in and then stay with me the weekend. That was it. Yeah. It was totally unexpected. So we have our, was, our videos of that, and that's where these are the holiday. Uh, this is the holiday came from. <laughs> and it was a book laddish weekend, everyone. Um, the reason why it's due to Caesar just happens to be because the only copy. I have Shakespeare is my granddad's Julius Caesar. And I just carried it along um, as sort of a pose thing. But then I started quoting from it. But I didn't really bother going to the important part. I just <laughs> I just quoted the first lines. And it is like the, the first lines, name type profession. Is this a holiday? And anyway, it's, it's the latest scream, right? I mean, it's the latest. It, it's, the kids love it. And I think we're going to do it presumably on the next episode of Playboys. I think we promoted it so much now that yeah, we I think to, so. We, we have talked to do about it. it so. <laughs> It's, it's there's a lot of there's a lot of pressure it's it's like the when's the next album from boston coming out that kind of pressure yeah it's you know due, man that. the next boston album it's been nine years it's due any day any day yeah, so please it's, it's please. like there was julius caesar <laughs> talking about the old jay caesar that would be our 11th episode we officially have 10 shaky poets excuse me shakespeare um we do shakespeare episodes did you know we did one this month pj I would hope so. I was there when I said <laughs> severe memory loss. It was myself and you and uh, Playboy Alex and your guitar. Yes. And we did yes. The Taming of the Shrew. Yes, exactly. And um, well, I don't know if we tamed. Um, I, I just I was going to make a pun there, but I don't know what to say about that play, to be honest. <laughs> it's a it's controversial a... one. <laughs> Look, um, well, have, a, have a listen in to it, guys. It's for the GEC. We did that one. I mean, I still enjoyed it, but of course, it's 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 a kind of a, it's it's very it's double edged. You can't enjoy yeah, it too yeah. much in the modern day world, yeah. But, but anyway, it is what it is. But we covered all the all the A level ones, and it's on there. So it's uh, it was it was it was still it's always fun to do the episodes, you know, even though that might not have been our favorite play or or whatever, you know. Um, exactly. But what we're talking about is Playboys, which you can get at patreoncom booksboys. And that's where you can get all of our Bufanda Boys bonus shows. PJ, you're wearing your Bufanda there, I believe. I am indeed, of course. And 
we've got Playboys also came out this month was a new interview from the vault with the amazing band Oh My Blackbird. They're a singer-songwriter type acoustic trio with a bit of classical influence and a bit of just fun vibe. Um and also episode four of Dark Place Dreamers with myself and Robert, and we reviewed Apes of Wrath, which is the Planet of the Apes in a hospital with people from the IT crowd. That's really all I can say. <laughs> so <laughs> that was a fun one, and it was the most fun episode that Robert actually enjoyed. Um, so if you want to hear that, that's uh, that's up on like, our Patreon as well. All right, is Robert even enjoying these episodes? It seems like he's just kind of being forced to. Um, well, initially he them. was being forced, and <laughs> I was loving them, and he was hating them. But this is the one episode that he did enjoy. Right. So. Out of the six episodes, okay. this okay, is the only okay. one he liked. Well, that's good then. <laughs> all but, right. Um, yep, yeah, so that's all I on our Patreon. Um, but today, we're talking about books, PJ. Excuse me, I just got myself some hot water. Mentioning that, Dean, we were going to do... I had a fabulous idea. Uh, everyone listening, just chip in, and I would like to know your opinion. I was going to do a special um, Patreon episode, which was just about us three lads us two lads and our mutual friend, Alex, uh, basically sitting down, drinking tea with sound effects or real effect, real sound, of, or maybe just a real sound of, of teas boiling over Us and clinking and smashing and thinking and talking <laughs> very pompously about literature. Um, what do you think? Does that sound like something you'd like to spend your uh, precious time with? We can do it. I'll wear my suit and top hat, guys. Email us at booksboys at hotmail.com or give us a Twitter or whatever, the tweets and the the Instagrams. Uh, we can we can make it we can make that happen when we next see each other. Yeah, let's just see, let's see how the votes go. Yes. Uh, (laughs) anyway, we certainly did have that in real life at the weekend here in in my cottage and we did. We have a video of you reading Irish fairy stories. So Indeed, yes, indeed. And we read actually we, we did just we literally did read and talk about literature and yeah. We did we sang sea shanties, we performed my lovely horse in a bookshop, so I don't know what's going yes, on there. Is that Lisa? Yes, it's it's <laughs> look you missed out, guys. It's just we have some of it on, on record, but the rest is for the imagination. That's it. And well, t- talking about the books we read, I did finish the, the book um there and I, I finished my first book of the month there while you were there um mm-hmm. i watched I you I, finish the closing pages of the yes, amazing winter set hollow indeed uh, i thought i could start uh, this time Dean, go uh, ahead because i'm very I, I can't wait to talk about this book and it is the one and only winter set hollow which was reviewed uh by dean i believe two episodes ago right uh, oh, yeah no, excuse couple, me no, no, maybe few, more yeah it's a few months before yes yeah, well, I did want to read it, but I wasn't in Ireland, and I didn't want it to be sent over personally. It was too precious. So this is Winter Set Hollow by Jonathan Edward Durham, uh, who uh, you interviewed, Dean. Uh, well, who mm-hmm. what am I talking about? He called at the show. What a coincidence. Called in unexpectedly, yeah. Unexpectedly, but I had not read the book, and I was deeply intrigued by the premise. Um, now... I won't get too much into it. For that, you can go back to the episode. Maybe Dean, you can mention, we can write down later which episode it was. I believe it's possibly the December or November episode. I will find Winter's- that out while you talk. <laughs> Winter- <laughs> Winter Set Hollow is, um, well, it's a book, first of all, that doesn't feel as if it were written uh, any time um, at the last year. I mean, I think I believe it was maybe written two years ago, but published last year. I'm not sure, actually, but um, it was published last year, that's for sure, um, in September, because it's supposed to, well, it's supposed to come up during Barley Day, which is the day that is celebrated in the book, because it is the day um, where the novel, within this novel, which is called Winter Set Hollow, uh, which is about animals that celebrate Barley Day once a year, where they celebrate that they're about to go into their winter sleep, they have like a big feast and celebrate the summer one last time before they go into their winter sleep. And they get attacked by um, by buffaloes. So essentially the, the rabbits of the story, they're a bunch of animals. It's very much like, a, well, it's very much like a, kind of a, I suppose a, a kind of a typical fairy tale um, with, with animals, talking animals. That's the way it, it's, that's the way the, book within the book yeah. is and 
basically the buffaloes come and they destroy the whole destroy the whole harmony of this paradise but the book we're reading is set in actual time and it's about three friends who go looking for the author of the original Winterset Hollows house which is on Addington Isle now the protagonist of the book he himself got a a, a um, excuse me a, um, a voucher and he's got a free ticket to go with his friends and he well he just meets other fans of the books and they all decide to go to Addington Isle mm-hmm. and of course everything is barred there there's you can't enter the mansion but curiosity gets the better out of each one of them and they all end up in the house however the thing is there is a talking rabbit there runny indeed now Dean you you, you can chip in because you read the book yourself so this is nice because we both read the book now I've got a bit more recent memory but uh, how did you find that Dean when all of a sudden there was literally the, the, the rabbit from the book he's actually there except that he's missing a leg he's run down he's, he's yeah old. he's a bit war torn uh, it's yes. a powerful moment and I didn't really yeah. expect it because I didn't know what the book was going to be about to be honest mm-hmm. I didn't look at any spoilers I didn't even read the back cover but yeah, yeah. I love Runny you know he was he's essentially my favorite um don't forget I've read about 20 books since this um so I'm it's not yeah, it's crashing my mind um so you will be better at this than me I just checked. We reviewed it on episode thirteen, which we re- we recorded on Halloween and released the day after. Um, yes, that's what I thought. So, so it's been a, it's been a few months, but um, yeah, I mean, Runny's an amazing, amazing character. Indeed. So check out again for the interview with the author. Um, but I did, I do follow actually the author, and I find him very um, actually amusing. <clears throat> to be honest, he he does post a lot and <laughs> talks about his influences, and he did mention that Runny is his favorite character by yeah. far. The rabbit in the rye. Uh, the rabbit and the rye. So they meet the characters from the book, which includes a fox, a frog, Phineas a and, rabbit. Um, I can't remember the frog's name. Um, the frog's name is... Um, oh, it's escaped my mind too, actually. Um, uh, oh, uh, however, um, what's the frog's name? Um, anyway, they've got... There's a frog, there a rabbit, um, frog, rabbit, fox... And eventually a bear as well. So they're the essentially the, the main characters uh, from the book are actually there. They are war-torn. They are still alive. But they've all been through a lot of grief recently. And the house is very strange. It's, it's the mansion from the author. But there's no, there are no people there. It's just uh, four characters living there. And, and everyone's wondering what's going on. Or actually, they're not really wondering anymore what's going on. The, the kids who've entered this mansion are too intrigued by the magic of the place. And... It's barley day. It is barley day, and actually, gonna the animals are there to celebrate. They're very cooked dinner. It's pretty majestic. It's very similar, I find, in some sense, for anyone's read or seen the film Caroline, where she also goes to this parallel family, and her mother and father are perfected and they prepare the dinner for her, and they spend time with her. And this is the the book goes like this, essentially, that it's not really as magical as it seems. There is a deeper reason why Barley Day is celebrated. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the reason for the animals to celebrate Barley Day is, let's just say, it's kind of as a sort of an exorcism activity. They're it's almost the to... opposite of what you think. Yes, it's almost the opposite. They need to do it to, let's just say, almost cleanse their souls. They, they really need to do it uh, without giving spoilers. There are a very intriguing spoilers, actually, Sort of very intriguing twists in the, in the book happening, and it goes deep, deep, deep into the darkness of of mankind and mother nature fighting back. And mother nature is is not mother nature is cruel too. Mother nature just is, and it's fighting back. It's not it's not attempting to excuse mankind, even if these kids haven't done anything. Their fathers did something. I find it very intriguing. Because that is that's very relevant. So we're ruining mother we're ruining Mother Earth. And this book is all about that. Except that the animals fight back. And yes, they can talk. They're anthropomorphic. However, they did spend a lot of time with the humans. Mm. The idea is it's not really explained actually why they talk. I find it intriguing. But it suggested just suggested that um animals at some point 
these animals did talk and there was nothing unusual about them just having the ability to talk but that afterwards all the animals became extinct that could talk but they fight back but i mean you would agree that they take it a little bit too far right Indeed, yes. So they take it very, becomes very, as you mentioned, Battle Royale-esque. And I don't actually want to talk about the rest also because mm. you um, talked about it. But I do want to mention just, again, the themes. And I think it's a really relevant book. And, and I'd like to, um, yes, i just like to say that um, yeah, it's one of the most intriguing novels I've read in, in a very long time. The writing style is very daring also. It's very flowery, and I think an editor would have, could have, might have even gone to him and say, "Look, do you really want to say these words? The words that yeah. you have to check in the dictionary." But I think, no, no, I love that actually. It doesn't care about some people saying that's pretentious. He just really went with the flow. Yeah, I said at the time um, it was a very special book, and I included it in my top three out of the what sixty did, books yes. that I read last year. You know, so. so th- I, look, I, Jonathan, if you're listening to this, I'm, I'm saying, uh, look, the same with me. This is one of the best books I've read in, in a very long time. And I just, it's got a very special place in my heart. I even read it in the forest of Mount uh, of, of County Clare here in the Burn. So that was a great place to, um, to read this. I, I, I Did went you come out of your skin when you, you know, saw a rabbit or something in the distance? Yes. <laughs> no, quite literally. I saw, I, saw, I saw rabbits and I thought, okay, well, maybe not quite as... As benevolent as it seems, um, <laughs> but it's the opposite of, of being like animal crew guys. This is this is literally the opposite. This is someone saying "f you humans." I get the feeling, but nevertheless, you do root for the humans. If anyone has to survive, it's intriguing. You still want the humans to survive. Is so that I what uh, Peter Singer would call the old speciesism? Like, is that us just? Indeed, you know? Yes, that's Peter Singer <laughs> defending them. Yeah. So Winter said Hollow, give it a read. And the very intrigued what's coming up next. And it's it's a beautiful book, please. Beautiful and horrifying, excuse me. But I would say just meaningful and deep as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's something very, very special. Yes. All right. What well, do you think? Should I? I mean, I've read a lot. Um, that might come as a no, no this, this surprise. Might, <laughs> this, might, this might take a while, indeed. So... I'm going to start by mentioning um, the first thing I read, and I'm not going to spend a long time on this because I always start with something boring, uh, just to draw the listeners in, you know. So I read <laughs> um, Diogenes Laertius, uh, Lives of Eminent Philosophers. Now, also known as the thriller of the century. Yes, the kids love it. But I, I should say I, I skimmed it. Like I didn't read every single life. Typically, I read the ones that I already knew, like the philosophers I'd heard of. Because he writes, it's a, it's a two-volume set, and I really... I suppose I turned two books into one by reading half, essentially. Um, but look, there's not a massive amount to say. I mean, he starts with Thales, which is the kind of, what, the first philosopher, if you will, um, the first kind of known um, and, and yeah. recorded philosopher from, you know, 6th century BC. Um, and we move through, you know, we, talk, we cover well, all the greats. I was a big fan of Diogenes when I was, I was a kid. I, lo- I loved the whole kind of, um, Alexander came up to him, this, ah, this is basically a philosopher. And this is not the story. same Diogenes. Oh, is it not? Ah, come on. Because this Diogenes writes a biography of the other Diogenes. Oh, this, is, this guy was just a writer. He just wrote biographies of philosophers. And oh, the reason wow. he puts Laertius in his name is so you know it's not the actual Diogenes. Oh, right. Okay. But we can talk about Diogenes if you want, because he's one that, that has, and I, there's a biography of him in here, and I, and I read it. Yeah. And yeah, there's the stuff about Alexander and this, you know, to be honest, look, it's a bit skeptical because there's the famous kind of bit where uh, you know he tells alexander to get out of his light and uh, out of his sunlight yes, he, yes but in a small biography there's about three or four times that that similar thing happens so it's a little bit unbelievable and we hear for example um you know alexander says if i could be anyone yeah. other than alexander i would be diogenes and it's like <laughs> okay I, I think that you're i don't know if i believe this you know <laughs> it is funny yeah and then something similar happens and someone else says something similar about Diogenes. And it's like, okay, you know, I don't know how true this is at this point. Um, but we also have the cool things where he says to, I think it might be Plato. He says yeah. about the feather, you know, humans are featherless bipeds. So he plucks a chicken and walks around and he says, well, there's your human, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like, it does sound amusing. I mean. He is amusing. And, um, we, we, we cover as well the likes of, you know, Solon. So Solon, I wouldn't have really called Solon a philosopher. He's more of a lawmaker oh, and a poet. 
but he oh, he wrote, made a lot of the laws for Athens but, but after I mean, the tyrants. Back in back in those days, it was a very different kind of meaning of philosophy. Even even in uh, Shakespearean times, it's yeah yeah back then especially. But they get rid of the Pisistrian tyrants, and then Solon made some laws. We cover obviously the likes of Socrates. So the great Socrates is in there. Lads. You're, a big, you're a big fan yourself, did, did you ever hear this? The very first thing we learn, in, in, in quotation marks, learn yeah. about Socrates is that he was believed to have written some of Euripides' plays. I've never heard that from any other source. Like, I think that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I have a hard time believing that he wrote Medea. He never I mean, wrote anything, uh, that, as far as we yeah, know. I don't think so. You know, so that was, that was one that I struggled to get on. And then we have okay. the, the ones that do their pseudoscience, the likes of Anaxagoras. Oh, yeah. And he talks about, you know, this um, the, the Milky Way being a reflection of light and sun and emitting flames and comets and the sky is a revolving dome with a celestial pole in the middle. And they, they just, it's all this nonsense that they couldn't possibly have known and they weren't able to verify. And they just I, decide... I hope you appreciate the sound effect of just water being poured into, into a teacup. Sorry, interrupting you there. <laughs> I, that, was, that was not a sound effect. That was real life. I didn't have to add that one in post, guys. So just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay couldn't help myself please continue but so that sounds very um so yeah i mean the impression i get from all these books seen is that yes intriguing but how much is true you know what i mean yeah what's fiction what's i wonder um yeah, we get a really... massive section on plato of course because plato invented He's all mad. of you know that entire period of philosophy drawing on socrates obviously but you know what's mm. interesting we know plato wrote dialogues and we have a few from xenophon as well but he lists a lot of other Socratics, and they all wrote dialogues, just most of them haven't survived. Yes, um, but, I, I did hear about that. Yep. Yeah, so there's a lot of this book is filler. Um, so he'll just say, like, here's a philosopher, and then here's three pages, which are just lists of titles of essays that yeah. he wrote, none of which survive. So it's like, well, we've just got a lot that's of titles, good. like, that's good that's for depressing. the historical record, I guess, but it's not, uh, it's not great reading. <laughs> You that's know? a bit depressing. Imagine, imagine you actually <laughs> did write so much, and then all that's left is just the references of your, of I know. all your life's work. It's a little bit sad at times. <laughs> um, but look, I love Socrates and I love Plato. Uh, Aristotle, I didn't like as much, but we go into all of those guys. We talk about Xenophon. There's an interesting thing: no one likes mm. Plato. <laughs> like in almost every one, it's like, well, they had a bit of a rivalry with Plato, and Xenophon didn't like him, and Diogenes didn't like him, and no one really <laughs> likes him. Plato was a bit of a poncy aristocrat, and he's very stuck up by the science of things, and no one really okay. liked him. But Socrates oh. liked him because Socrates dreamt about a swan, and the next day he met Plato, and he thought that Plato was <laughs> his swan. <you> know? <laughs> You can met, you can mention that one of your um, videos. You got plenty of them with swans. I, I think we have to on the <laughs> YouTube at least. We yeah. have to subcategorize just books, boys videos and books, boys swans videos. Just the swan That's video. Well, now that I know they're Plato, <laughs> I've got to do even more. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, you got the last one was uh, swans. You're inviting the swans to read uh, Iris Murdoch, and I think <laughs> yes, they kind of. That's right. I'm not sure what they thought of her. <laughs> here's a good quote because you mentioned Diogenes, and here's an interesting quote. Someone uh, asks him you know, where where can we find good men? And he says, well, there are good men nowhere, but there are good boys in Lacadaimon, which is Sparta. So Sparta had obviously boys doing That's... military training. So he says, That's... you know, there's no there's no good men, but at least Sparta has good boys, you know, in training. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, Dean. <laughs> That's a quote we need nowadays, you know? I mean, it, 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 it might sounds not. like the most unfortunate quotes uh, remember by. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's other bits where someone mentions there's no such thing as motion. So Diogenes just gets up and walks around and sits down again. He's like, well, Zeno's you know, paradox is quashed, you know. It sounds almost PG Woodhousian. Yeah, it is a bit, thing. yeah. And we have Zeno. Okay. We have a massive section on Epicurus, which, I mean, Epicurus is interesting, the whole whence cometh evil and everything. But um, uh-huh. I think by that point, I was bored, you know. So this is, and we got Pythagoras, he of the theorem, you know. Okay, the man himself, and um, and, and Piro who talks about um, I mean, this is the kind of stuff. So this is hard to read if you're not interested in philosophy. They used also to deny the possibility of learning. If anything is taught, they say either the existent is taught through its existence or the non-existence through its non-existence. But the existence is not taught through its existence. For the nature of existing things is apparent to all and recognized by all. Nor is the non-existent taught through the non-existent, for which the non-existent nothing is ever done, so that it cannot be taught to anyone. Like, if you're not really interested in philosophy, you're going to throw this book in the trash. Let's be honest. (laughs) (laughs) All right, okay, so it doesn't sound... 
It's use is just a, a biography of philosophers and it's good for intro. So with the key philosophers like Plato, he just gives long sections of all the stuff that they influenced and all the different schools of thought based on Plato. So if you just want like, what's the overall vibe on Plato? Well, here it is in 50 pages, you know, or what's the overall vibe on Epicurus? Here it is in 50 pages. So that's kind of good. But uh, I think you really need to care about this stuff to want to read this book. Mm. Okay, okay. All right. Well, you may sound amusing, but it might not be quite as Woodhousian. But that's because I'm a, I'm a thorough entertainer, uh, PJ. And indeed, I, I really... Ray Skilled, skilled <laughs> in the arts of comedy. Um, indeed. Uh, the next book I read uh, is something called The Black Tulip. Have you heard of this, PJ? I have indeed. I believe I have oh, a copy right here. How did that happen? How did this copy get through the screen? I don't. I just passed it through the screen to you in the past, I guess. Indeed. Here it is. It's, uh, well, I haven't, I haven't read it yet, but you gave it to me. It's uh, Tulipan Negro. You write it in Spanish. Uh, yep. I mean, uh, no, no. Uh, you were actually talking about this because we talked about why do we read as in languages and it sound pretentious. I know, guys. So we're not trying to be pretentious <laughs> or anything like that. I mean, um, uh, just well, the idea yourself. Is- I, I'm, I'm trying to be pretentious. <laughs> well, the idea is that it is, it is, if you can, if you're, uh, if you're interested in languages, it is generally a lot more enjoyable, I find, to read a text in the original language, or in the case of Dumas, uh, French is just better translating to Spanish. I just, I always see the same thing, or Portuguese. I read Cosa Saramago, the Portuguese author. I only read him Spanish because he was so much more different in English, and just, I just found it a lot more genuine in Spanish. That's my little say about translation. Please go on. Tulipan Negro or so, the Yeah, this was, a, this was a Dumas. This came in a little care package sent over to me um, by Valerie the Pigeon Detective. A little care package of books on my lovely little uh, books teacup. And um, yeah, so it's Dumas. So I love Dumas. Uh, that's not a surprise to anyone. It is a French book. Uh, I did read it in Spanish. El Tulipan Negro, uh, La Tulip Noir, whatever, the, the Black Tulip. Um, I mean, only Dumas could do this. Only Dumas could take a book about really nothing, just about a guy growing some tulips and turn it into a, a wonderful, addictive <laughs> masterpiece. We had a joke about this, that he could make an intriguing novel about a toaster and its inner workings and, and feelings. Like I think he story. could. He could. And in The Black Tulip, we have... So essentially, there are these two rival... Um, do they call them tulip and arrows? There's not really an English word, but tulip florists, I guess. They're, they're growing tulips. <laughs> And um, one of them is trying to grow a black tulip. Now, I went into this thinking the black tulip was a name for something. Like it was an artifact or it was... No, it's literally just he's growing flowers. And um, he thinks that he can win 100,000 florins if he can grow this black tulip. So I don't know who's putting up this money. Like the Flower Society are just hemorrhaging money on these (laughs) black tulips by the sounds of things. But they're putting up this money and he wants to win it. But this other crafty chap tries to um, to steal his, you know, his, not his recipe, but his secrets, right? how he's growing it. And they're spying on each other and they're obsessed. Then we get a weird 50-page just, you know, like the Anna Karenina method. There's just a 50-page insert about tulips, you know. And well, it, 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 it lost Anna Oh, well, but this is before Anna Karenina, so it's, it's total influence. I mean, Tolson <laughs> read this and they thought, all right, if he can talk about, if he can have 50 pages of, uh, of tulips, then I can do 500 pages on agriculture, <laughs> agricultural methods. It's more like That's 700, yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah, but it's it's only 50 and, you know, he nearly lost me. I was thinking, oh, this is a little bit boring, but then he picks it up with the story and it's this 300 pages of magnificence then. Um so the guy is a relative of, of uh, Jean and Cornel de Witt, and they get beheaded, and therefore he gets put in prison for keeping their secrets. They've given him documents. But he's never opened them, so we just know what they are, but they, they think that he's bad, and they put him in jail. And he falls in love with his jailer's daughter, because what else would you do? Um, so it's all about these... Ch- and the, the, the jailer comes in, and he's mean, and he crushes his black tulip bulb, and he trashes it, and you know he doesn't, he doesn't want him to have any, any nice things. Um, and the daughter Rose is in love with him, and then this is slightly ridiculous. The other tulip guy just goes to the prison in disguise, and he's like, "Hey, I'm um, somehow at the prison." He's not a prisoner. He's just he just goes to the jailer, and he's like, "I'm just going to live with you for like a while." Uh, am I an inspector? I don't know. Am I? Who knows? I'm just here living in your house, 
and I'm going to look at, I'm going to spy on your daughter a lot, and I'm going to be very interested in this prisoner. And the guy's just like, yeah, this this checks out. So this guy... That sounds um, like a parody of, um, of Count of Monte Cristo, though. It kind of is a little bit. And this guy, Isaac's just there, um, Boxtel, he's just there, and... Um, Rosa becomes very coquettish, which I love. And she's, you know, he's telling her he loves her. And he's like, yeah, but not as much as you love your tulips. And then, you know, I shan't come back and see you for a week. And then she leaves him there pining in jail and won't come back to him. And, you know. However, I believe a quote from the book, a very relevant quote is, to despise flowers is to offend God. That is so true. Is that the whole theme of the of the book? I mean, that sounds it's, like something you could put up on your wall, even with your pressed flowers. And uh, <laughs> I do like yeah. to press flowers, and I grow roses and things. Of course, I'm fuchsias. It's um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's um, a book really all about the beauty of flowers and of people. But there's some mean people too, you know. And mm-hmm. also, um, William of Orange, Guillermo, Guillermo de Orange appears. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not he a popular only... character in, I mean, well, I mean, kind of a very popular character, not so popular character in uh, <laughs> Northern Ireland. Yeah, my, my Northern Irishisms, my radars were, were going off the charts when, when Guillermo <laughs> was mentioned, but he really, he's mentioned Until you realise who, but... until you realise that Guillermo was William, it took you another 20 pages. But... <laughs> he only really turns up at the end and he's, he's kind of like a, a bit of a deus ex machina, you know, he's one of these benevolent kind of rulers who just comes in and fixes everything, you know. Um, which is a trope I like, but this is just a typical Dumas. It's just your romanticism. Um, it's not really about anything other than the tulips, but the guy has three bulbs. Sweetman one gets destroyed. Rosa starts growing the second one for him. And he says, well, you can have the 100,000 florins then. I'm going to be in jail anyway. I don't care about the money. I just want to make the flower. And then they all go on a pilgrimage to like the floral industries place and they're all vying for the money. And Guillermo has to step in and say like, who's getting the money for these tulips? Like it's really important. It's so important that the king or the prince needs to step in and talk about like, who's getting the money for these tulips? You know, like it's, a, it's the big issue of the day. <laughs> all right. Intriguing but stuff. it's a fun, it's a fun book, you know, and I don't want to obviously, I, I never, I don't even want to say what happens at the end. Um, mm. Not much it's really, fun. but it's, like a fun, it. it's a fun book. I, I just love Dumas. So, and you'll yeah. know I love Dumas, PJ, because you witnessed me in a bookshop in Galway getting very excited and buying all of their Dumas. <laughs> yes, literally, he bought all of the Dumas books uh, that were there. And the mo- most obscure Dumas books I had never heard of. I-, I thought at one point it might have been Dumas Fille, the son, but no, it was Dumas Pair. So there'd be some really unknown Dumas books, book reviews, I expect, in the upcoming months. Well, there's one right now because the next oh. the next book I read was well I don't even know what I read, man. Uh, it's memoirs of a physician, but it's so confusing because this has been released <laughs> in different volumes. So there's two books. There's Joseph Balsamo, and there's memoirs of a physician. I think I've right. read Joseph Balsamo, but my copy <laughs> my copy calls it memoirs of a physician volume one. And then I pulled up the Wikipedia and I was like, wait, what's going on? There's, vo- there's different versions that released it in five volumes. There's versions that released it in six volumes. There's versions that released it in one. There's versions that released it in three right. volumes, but the third volume was actually the second book and not Memoirs of... It's a mess. <laughs> like, I have no idea. So I've read something, which I think is Joseph Balsamo. Like, it's impossible to even know what I've read, but it was also amazing. And there's, pic- there's some lovely pictures on this. I have a really, really old copy. And I've put well, the, the pictures... That, that's the book you were reading at, um, here at my cottage. Yes, this yes, one was it falling apart. I, I was worried that it might just disintegrate. The spine into fell dust. apart. Now, to be fair, so the library aren't going to like that. Actually, when I, when I gave that. Back. All right, yeah. Um, this one opens in a really weird non-Dumas way. The introduction—it's like some kind of weird cult, like hooded figures. They call them phantoms. I was thinking, is this a ghost story? What's going on? And this chap goes in and kind of penetrates their fortress. And they make him do these tests and the tests are like, you know, there's people there's drinking blood and stabbing a person to die and then sh- shooting him and all this. And then that's he says, nice well, thing to do. I know that these aren't real. That guy's not really dead. The gun had a blank in it. And that's not really blood. It's dyed liquid and the dagger retracts. And they say, how could you know this? And he says, because I am your leader. Ha-ha. So actually he was like their destined leader. And I'm thinking this is all really Undumar-like. And then it basically says that this man was Joseph Balsamo, Baron Balsamo. And then it starts properly after the introduction and we're just into normal Dumas world. So I don't really know what that was about. Um, 
But I don't know what a lot of things were about, PJ, because this is Memoirs of a Physician, and I don't know who the physician is. And I've read 350 pages, and I don't know which one is meant to be the physician. So <laughs> I don't think it's Balsamo. He's a sorcerer. And right, okay. he's kind of a, a sorcerer. He's also called the Count of Phoenix, and he's also called something else and some other ancient name. He, kind of like Monte Cristo, where the guy's got a lot of different names, you know, um, okay. like Dante's. But he turns up at the house of this like obscure they're they're like a an aristocratic family but they're poor and they've fallen hard times and no one remembers them and he turns up and he says oh by the way marie antoinette's about to arrive and they're like how could you know this And he's like ha because i'm a sorcerer and then she does arrive and you know she's on a swoon because this man's like weirdly charismatic and he prepares a banquet by magic for them i don't know what he's doing um it's a strange chap, but he also hypnotizes people. Um, and he they talk about putting their mind into like an electric state or something. And he, he can hypnotize a girl and then she can see things and tell him. So he predicts the future by what the girl sees when she's under this electronic hi- hypnotic state. It's not really explained right. how this happens, um, but it's just that he's a sorcerer and, and a hypnotist, basically. Um but he has a wife, Lorenza, and it's really clear that she doesn't... This is difficult to read in the modern day. It's clear that she doesn't want to be with him when she's awake. Oh, no. But when she's hypnotized, she says she loves him and she wants to stay with him. And it's like, well, she would say that when you've hypnotized her. Um, but she's definitely oh. trying to run away when she's, like, wakeful and sane and sober, you know. <laughs> so there's definitely that to take into consideration. And she flees to a convent for help, and he comes into the convent and he says, well, when I put her in this state... She talks in a weird monotone, but she definitely sounds says very that... like uh, you know what it sounds like. It sounds like the second book from ah um, oh, the Carlos Ruiz Zafon book. You know the one I mean, where where the woman also goes to a mental institution at the end. Oh um, yes, which one is that? Is it Juego de Angel? What's that? Is it the the yes, Angels Juego game? Angel. Yeah. Yes, the Angels game. Yeah, it sounds like the it sounds like the Angels game was inspired by them. And I think Carlos Ruiz Zafon was a big fan of Duma. I think was I think you mentioned it once or twice. Well, who isn't? But I mean, to be <laughs> honest, Balsamo's not even the main character. Like he, it's named after him, but then we don't see him for like most of the book. He just pops again, up now again, and again. Again, totally seems to be influenced. You know, Anna Karenina. Not much about, not much about Anna Karenina there. <laughs> he pops up now and again, just valiantly. Like you know, they're in the court and there's all these intrigues happening, and all of a sudden. Who's that charming gentleman in the corner? You know, da 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 da. It's Joseph Balsamo or the Count of Phoenix, and he's just intriguing in the background, you know. But then we have like a weird <laughs> hundred pages. So basically, there's the king, Louis the Fifteenth, is the king at this time, and um, Marie Antoinette is about to marry his, uh, his his heir, the Dauphin. And there's a lot of intrigue because Madame Du Barry wants to be uh, he's the queen's favorite she's the king's favorite and she wants to be presented formally at court and be able to hang out with the little you know the people who hang out at court basically hangers on to the king Uh, we have a hundred pages about how can she get presented at court and it's ridiculous because the king wants her to be presented at court she wants to be presented at court but the other countesses don't want her there and they can't get her presented unless a countess is willing to do it so there's just this 100-page shenanigans of trying to find some old countess out in the country to come in and get this girl presented at court. So it's really weird. And then once that's over, we're just like, well, that was done. That countess can go away, and I will continue with the plot. Um, and we also have this lovely little chap called Gilbert, and he's a philosopher. And they all think he's lazy. But he's not lazy. He just doesn't want to do the kind of work that they want. He doesn't want to do servant work. He's a philosopher. So he goes... And he follows them when they leave the castle and they go to court and they don't bring him with him. They're like, well, you stay at the house and I don't really care if you live or die kind of thing. So he just locks up their house and says, well, I don't care if your house lives or dies and I'm going to go and follow you to, to, to Versailles, where he meets Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Ooh. And he becomes yeah, he becomes the protege of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the philosopher. The Swiss, philosoph- the Swiss philosopher. Yes. Uh, everyone. And there's a lot I of believe- stuff about civil unrest in this book. Okay, and why is he mentioned then? Why is Rousseau? Rousseau becomes a main character because it's a lot of... he's There's civil unrest happening against the king and the types of things that Rousseau and others are saying are are actually bringing revolutionary thought in Paris and Versailles. Hmm. And they also mention Voltaire a few times, but he hasn't appeared yet. Um, 
But yeah, so we get philosophical in parts and Gilbert becomes his protege. And then this rich countess just wants to own Gilbert. She's just like, well, I want this little chap to be with me. And they just try to essentially force him to work for them. And that's the book ends randomly because obviously this is volume one. So there's no ending. It just stops, you know. But I like the Baron um, because the Baron always says things like, I have no better servant than this, sir. He's a very bad one, but I have not the means of getting a better. The fool has been with me 20 years without getting a penny of wages. I feed him about as well as he waits on me. He is an ass. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. so it's just this like, hey, I do feed this guy, but he lives here for 20 years and I, he's my servant, you know. Wow. But Gilbert's really, really wanted to marry. So Gilbert, you, you might think you like him, but he did some bad things. Um, the daughter, um, Andre, she had a servant called Nicole. And Nicole and Gilbert were kind of, I don't know if they were engaged, but there seemed to be some kind of mutual understanding until Gilbert realizes, well, I don't really like you. I like the rich girl, like Andrea, not not the servant. So she kind of jilts Nicole, which is really mean. And poor Nicole, I feel really bad for her. Um, Andrea is very cold to her as well, but she does eventually give her a diary when she thinks she's going to get married. And they all go to, they all go to Paris together. And then there's just some political intrigue. And then that's it. Like it's, it, as I say, it kind of stops. I don't have a conclusion. It is that'll, the first part of, of, of a trilogy. Yeah. So. It, um, well, I think that I have part one of two, um, okay. but it's impossible to, to, to know. Um, but I'm going to pick it up next time and read the second half. I actually started it today and we'll, we'll kind of get, get there with that, but I'm loving it. I mean, I'm always loving, um, I'm always loving um, Dumas because he's just so amazingly romantic in the way he writes everything. Wow, okay. um, do you know much about Louis the Fifteenth? Hmm. I don't know. He he's depicted as a kind of well, Louis the Fourteenth was supposed to be a great king, and the Fifteenth he's he's always like, oh, don't talk to me about politics, but like, where are the hot girls at? You know, and that's kind I'm of really? his vibe. He's like, I'm interested in girls and in not really doing any work. <laughs> okay, and he doesn't really like his sounds daughters like a... except for the one that intimidates him because she's very serious and wants to go off to a convent. Sounds like a bit like a Father Jack figure. Yeah, yeah, there's a little bit. And no one really respects him that much. And he doesn't know about what's going on in politics. And he says um, something like, to think that I am the grandson of the man who once said I was very near having to wait because they're making him wait for ages because no one respects him, you know. And it's kind of it's sad there, but he's just not interested in anything. And it's an interesting way to d- depict him just. But I'm just, I don't know what's going on. Like, I don't know what, what, what's the story with Balsamo? Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? He's like a bad version of Edmund Dante's. Like, I don't really know. It's an interesting, okay. I'm, I'm curious to see what's going to happen. I mean, he makes gold at one point. He's also an alchemist. Oh, is he? Okay, okay. Well, that's kind of, that's kind of handy. So he's making gold to bribe bishops with and things. And I just, I just don't know if, what to, to make of it at the halfway point. <laughs> okay, okay. Wait, how to tell us the rest of it then? Uh, are, you, are you reading now the second? The I started it today and I will finish it this week. So it'll be on the next the next episode, yeah. Talking about books you got in that bookshop in uh, in Galway, um, I also got uh, two copies. In fact, I thought I got um, um, a cheap Westerner um, from... Um, oh, the name escapes me. But anyway, I thought I was getting a Westerner and it wasn't a Western at all. It's um, a book by Carson McCullers, and I confused Carson. <laughs> I confused Carson McCullers. Uh, to be, I thought it was a man, to be honest. And um, it was not at all what I expected. It is an American novel, and here it is, Dean. Ah. Carson McCullers, uh, and the book is called "The Member of the Wedding." And now, to be honest, I I, I wasn't intending to buy this book. I said it was an accident, but I started reading this book. It's very short. And I must say, I haven't finished it yet, but it's, um, yeah, it just shows you how I take my time. It's a short book. I haven't <laughs> finished it yet, but I'm just taking my sweet time. It is absolutely sublime. Absolutely wonderful. In fact, um, it's, it's, it's just amazing. It's set. Carson McCullers is someone who died um, age 50. Someone who died age 50. It's a, <laughs> Carson McCullers was a poet and a novelist who had always a problem with alcohol. Her husband committed suicide and wanted to make suicide with her. Um, she was supposed to be quite an odd, an odd eccentric character, didn't really fit in, was always mingling with all kinds of characters, very 
sounds very lonely. And she wrote this book. She didn't write that much, to be honest, but she wrote this book. It took her five years to write, even though it's, um, how many pages? It's it's 180 pages. It took her five years to write. Uh, I find that amusing, but at the same time, I can completely understand that because this book is just like poetry. And, you know, you're, she's writing, every single line here is perfect, I find. It is about a young girl. Um, who basically feels lost in the world. It's set, it's a bit vague where it's set, but it's understood okay. that it's set during the Second World War. In fact, everything's very vague about for, first of all, the book. This, I would say even the plot line itself, the point of the novel arguably is simply, the story can be summarized as a 12-year-old girl uh, doesn't know what to do during the summer and her brother's getting married and she has a, 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 a deep problem with this. Uh, maybe insinuating that she might be in love with her brother or envious of the upcoming happiness he has. And let me please read out to you a few passages from the book, if anything, more than a plot, just to give you a vibe. Okay. The, it begins with, it happened that green and crazy summer when Frankie was 12 years old. This was the summer when for a long time she had not been a member. She belonged to no club and was a member of nothing in the world. Frankie had become an unjoined person who hung around in doorways and she was afraid. And this sets a tone, actually. That she's basically, this, this idea of unjoined person is a very big thing in the book. And it's really a very existential novel, but from the perspective of a 12-year-old who's very paranoid at the fact that she's grown a lot and she's as big as an adult and people start treating her as an adult. Um. Yes, and she basically she's motherless, and her father is kind of doesn't feel connected to her anymore, especially since she's become she looks more like an adult, and she hangs around with the family's African American maids, uh, Berenice, mm-hmm. and her and Frankie, the main character's six year old cousin, John Henry West, and that's kind of the setup. It's a very unusual trio. So you got. Um, uh, this is set in the south. Sorry, I should have mentioned this. Set in the south of USA. It's kind of okay. very important. So they are, Carson's also making a point of it in the writing. And so you got this 12-year-old kind of tomboyish character who throws knives and she's kind of, she's quite, she's quite vicious. And she's got her little cousin and she's got an African-American maid who's really kind of wise and almost like, uh, kind of like she foresees things. And um, Frankie's brother comes to visit. He's been in Alaska for a few years doing a service there as a, as a soldier. And he comes and he's announcing that he's getting married. And that's the, that's the novel, basically. That's, that's actually okay. the story itself isn't much. But you're always looking at it from the perspective of a 12-year-old girl who's very lost and she wants to leave and she doesn't understand what's going on. She doesn't understand the war. She, she knows a lot of facts but she doesn't actually know really what's going on. If I may read out to you. Frankie stood looking up and down the four worlds of the room. She's basically stuck in the kitchen almost the whole time. I don't know. She thought of the worlds and it was fast and loose and turning faster and looser and bigger than ever had been before. The pictures of the war sprang out and clashed together in her mind. She saw bright flowered islands and a land by a northern sea with the grey waves on the shore. Bombed eyes and shuffles of soldiers' feet, tanks and a plane, wings broken, burning and downward falling in the desert sky. The wall was cracked by the loud battles and turning a thousand miles a minute. The names of places spun in Frankie's mind, China, Peachville, New Zealand, Paris, Cincinnati, Rome, she thought of the huge and turning world until her legs began to tremble and there was sweat on the palms of her hands. But still she didn't know where she could go. Finally, she stopped looking around the four kitchen walls and said to Berenice, I feel just exactly like someone has peeled all the skin off me. I wish I had some cold, good chocolate ice cream. And the book is 
it's this it's 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 a mixture of childish sort of observations with like oh it's quite there's a war happening and there's fear and and i find very relevant for today's going on with ukraine and, and russia and all that it's um it's very vague. Is this the second world war? I don't want to spoil it. Is it what's going on? Mm. Because that's the point. She she doesn't know what's going on. And she dreams of outside. Well, she dreams of Alaska the whole time. And oh. I, I really rec- recommend this book, not if you're looking for an adventure or a big plot, but if you're just looking into a, shall I say, a philosophical, poetical yeah. insight into, into a, a really heartbroken 12-year-old girl who lost her mother. Make make no mistake, you can do a lot with 180 pages, you know. I mean, the typical Agatha Christie book is about 180, 190 pages. You can tell a full yeah. story there, you know. Yeah, totally right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a fascinating book. Highly recommend it. The member of the wedding, I'm, I'm very glad I mistook it with um, someone else and, <laughs> and bought it. And in fact, it's um, Sylvia Plath, the great feminist poet, uh, does think highly of it and even uses her phrase uh, the phrase silver and exact it's kind of a famous phrase it comes from that book it's not her own thing and even jarvis cocker the um singer from pope he even uh, quoted the book in in his album jarvis so it's kind of a minor cult book i would say okay. and it deserves so much more praise it deserves so much more praise it's absolutely brilliant well You've given me a good lead-in, BJ, because you mentioned being always in the kitchen, and that leads me into my next book, Como Agua para Chocolate. Oh, I love that book. Yeah. So actually, a Spanish person recently told me this was not a good book, um, but I read it, and now it's, uh, well, it's Mexican, but you know, you, you know the vibe I've had recently with a lot of these Latin American books. Other bad experiences. With, uh, I liked with, this with one. Secure- Oh, good. Okay, because yeah. yes, everyone, just so you're clear, I recommend it, Dean. I love um, Latin American literature. And I've been a huge fan of Latin American literature ever since I was 18. And I, and I just read a lot of it. And Gabriel Garcia Marquez is one of my heroes. And I really like uh, Como Agua para Chocolate. Mm-hmm. And that is very influenced by um, Marquez. So, yeah, so tell me more, Dean. You like so, this is, so this is Lara Esquivel. Um, I, I normally don't like the Latin American books so much because they lack dialogue. And this one had some dialogue. I'm not going to say that it was, you know, it's not as much dialogue as a Dickens or anything, but it was just a nice book. I liked it. The story came through. It's, yeah. it's very interesting. The concept is brilliant. Mm-hmm. So it's split into 12 um, chapters, which are essentially 12 recipes. It's a cookbook. Um, it's a cook cookbook novel. I love that. Yeah. yeah. So each chapter starts with ingredients and then each It'll say knife of the methods, and then it starts out with how you would cook the thing, and then develops it, into a story because every scene starts but, in the kitchen. But you literally have twelve recipes for Mexican yeah. cuisine when you buy the novel as well. I mean, it's and they're all very relevant, right? The dishes are really relevant to the uh, chapter. Now, I will say that it's it's again it's fairly short, and although I enjoyed it, I think by the last quarter I was starting to just feel like okay, just just wrap it up. I think it maybe goes downhill towards the end. But overall, um, I enjoyed it. I thought the concept of having it with a cookbook was really cool. Um, And to give an idea of the plot, so it's about this family. They're in the kitchen. It's very typical with that kind of culture. Um, They they care a lot about the food. She's writing this cookbook. And her mum, Mama Elena, basically is telling her, we have a tradition in our family that the youngest daughter is never allowed to marry. You just have to care for me. And it's not as if she needs someone to care for her health and her old age or anything. She just wants her to be a kind of servant and to like bathe her and all this kind of stuff. And she really doesn't treat her very well. And the girl's not really very happy being there. The girl's called Tita. Um, she's not very happy, but she's kind of afraid of her mom and she goes along with the traditions of the house. But there is a chap, Pedro, that, and they love each other. Now, this would have affected me more if the girl hadn't been 15. So he wants her to marry him and she's like, well, she can never marry because of this tradition. And she's like, I really want to marry. And then there's like a lot of like, she's feeling attraction and it's almost getting sexual. And I'm like, well, she is only 15 though. So she doesn't really need to marry right now. Like, that's fine. But, we can hold back tell, but to me, I know this book was written in, uh, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, like an old magic realism. Magic realism in Latin America, everyone starts from, ah, was Luis Borges and 
Carpentier around the 30s, 40s, mm. heyday around the 60s, 70s, 80s. This book is actually from 1992, so quite late. But I just want to mention that usually they talk about like 100 years before that or something. That was quite normal, though, at this time to get. I don't think it was such a, for me, yes, for modern times, but it didn't really strike me as an unusual thing for Latin American society 100 years prior. Yeah, look, pro- probably yeah. not, and that's that's fine, you know. But you're, you're just a very concerned individual, Dean. Thank you. I was a little moral, concerned, you know. I wrote, moral. I wrote in my notes. It doesn't matter. She's only 15. Like that was my like. It's fine. You can chill, guys. <laughs> she's got time. Um, but she's not allowed to get married to this guy, and then the guy ends up marrying her sister Rosara in order to be close to her, and so then they have a, an unhappy marriage. They have an irrelevant marriage because he doesn't like her. And um, there's there's a bit where he, you know, they're going to, I guess, they're going to consummate the marriage. And he does this little speech where he basically, he does a little prayer to God. And he says, you know, I'm not doing this for pleasure. I'm, I'm just doing it to give you another servant. Um, and in Spanish, it's said in a really nice way that kind of rhymes. And it's like a little, it's a little thing. But essentially what he's, what he's saying is, yeah, I don't really like my wife, I'm not having sex. He, was, he won't even see her naked while he's sleeping with her because um, he's just not interested in her at all. She covers off a bit and he's really only interested in her sister. And that is kind of sad, you know, and they make a weird agreement towards the end and they're all living unhappily, really. But um, there's some magical realism in here as well. There's some ghost stuff happening. There's also a doctor Again, who likes... Influenced, every time we talk about Latin American... A book it is very influenced by 100 years of solitude it is 100 years of solitude is basically what brought all these like everyone every single author from latin america i feel almost is influenced by in some in some sense yeah i, I suppose yeah but you know the reason he marries the second daughter is because the mum says to him well look you're not allowed to marry this one she's my servant but look i've got this other daughter she's ready for marriage like there we go it doesn't matter if you have any feelings for each other like you know you can't have one, have the other one. What's the problem, you know? Mm. Um, and there is a third daughter and she runs off. She absconds and runs off with a, with a military chap. Um, and when at one point there's difficult scenes where the mom is a real tyrant and, and it hits her with a spoon and, and hurts her nose. Um, and then, uh, you know, when the doctor's tending to her, the doctor falls in love with Tita. Um, so she has two potential suitors. But even though it would be a lot easier to just marry the doctor, she always thinks, but I do love Pedro. And even though he's married to my sister... We have this strong yeah. love. So there are other great romantic scenes that really get me. You know, I'm a I'm a sucker for the romance. Oh, um, I always have been, and I always will be. Um, so it's it's a good book. It's a very good book. The whole co- the whole idea of introduce mixing it with a cookbook is really interesting. Tita's made to feel a lot of moral guilt throughout it, which can be difficult at times. Um, I would just say overall that I, I really enjoyed it. And if you do like the Latin American stuff, I would recommend it. They, they lost me at the very end because right near the end, I'm not going to spoil the story, but right near the end, we do have a second generation is kind of born. And then the narrator says in like the closing two paragraphs, and that was my mother. So I'm the third generation. And I thought, God damn it, with these Latin American books, they have to have three generations. You, you, could, you just had to squeeze it in there right at the end. Three generations every time. Indeed, you do yes, but and, um, this one's good. And, and if you if you if you just can't be bothered reading for some reason, although we really recommend, I really recommend as well. Uh, there is a film uh, like oh. Water for Chocolate, released in the same year as well, and it became a big hit, big hit uh, back in the nineties. So, like Water for Chocolate, Comagua para Chocolate. Speaking of films, PJ, I'll just I'll not dwell on this, but I went to see the new uh, Death on the Nile. So it's nice to really? see okay. an Agatha Christie in cinema, Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. Uh, was it a good adaptation of the classic? Uh, no. Oh, okay. As a film, it was fine. But I'm sitting there thinking, why have you added in this weird like clips from the war with Poirot when he was younger and he wears a mustache to hide the scars on his face? I'm like, that never happened in the books, you know. <laughs> and then there's like a Mexican standoff. And I'm like, I don't, I need to go and read this book again. But I don't remember Poirot really using guns and having a Mexican standoff, you know. It's like okay. some inconsistencies. And there's one part where a girl gives Poirot a real dressing down and calls him a freak and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, yeah, we always knew that reading it, but no one ever really said that to him. Like there's just some inconsistencies with the books. It was know? the first it was the first book um I read of Agatha Christie. Fun love in Spanish as well. Um uh, bizarrely I, I envisioned Poirot to be a, a gray a gray haired um uh, tall man 
I had no idea oh. why. And then I realized, all right, that's in the next book. I realized it was more described. I, I can't I can't remember the book him being as as detailedly uh, described with great detail as the other ones. The egg shape. Anyway, still my favorite. I guess the Christie regretted uh, ever saying. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's like, it's uh, it's my favorite. It's still yeah. my favorite. Yes, if you uh, like Agatha Christie, we have a few episodes of Caper Captains also on patreon.com slash booksboys where we talk about some Agatha Christie's and we'll maybe get one of those up soon. Um, the next book I, I read, PJ, I'm not going to talk about. Uh, if you just give me 20 seconds, just to mention for the sake of the record that I did read one more book. Um, but I, I decided that we, we talked about this uh, off air uh, and you know someone wanted to be interviewed. And I just decided, no, I, the morality of the book doesn't sit well with, with either of us and we're not going to promote it. We're not going to mention the book or the chat by name. But I did read another book just so that people know I have been busy reading. Uh, I think I think we all know that you're reading that. <laughs> Don't you worry about that. I don't think, uh, yeah. This book, uh, I renamed it An Exercise in Narcissism, but... um, Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.